With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. installment of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. God, it might even be like uh, where I am. I'm skating on misgender ice over here. But anyway, I'm your program host, Patrick Egan. And as we always do, let's say hello and welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Gene Robinson, how's it going out there today? Oh, it's going well, Patrick. And you know what? I am an air man. I am proud to say that no problem so uh my license still says airman and it's going to stay that way <laughs> all right well we'll we can unpack that more later you know but um <laughs> okay so usually we do the news here and then we bring on our guests but i think today we're going to bring on our guests because uh this guy has been around for you know a little bit of time and uh you know, I think his perspective is going to be really good. So without further ado, let's bring on our guest, Mr. Steve Morris, VP of Aircraft Engineering at Valancey. Steve, you out there? Yes. Hi. How's it going today? Fantastic. Great to be on the show. And it's great to have you. Uh, as I was saying before we, we went live, it's like, you know, I know you for a long time and Drones are new, and uh, you were you've been into drones before they were selling a bit Best Buy. So I figured <laughs> we got to have this guy on and catch up. So before we get into the you know we do a current event or current news segment of the show um, where uh, Gene brings me down or let's say back <laughs> up from Chinatown, <laughs> and I go on some rant about type certifying rocks and whatnot. But anyway. Before we do that, um, could you please give the listening audience, uh, a, a, you know, a bio? And I would say little bio, but you've been in this industry for, you know, a long time, so that may take a little while. And that's okay. Let us have the high <laughs> point of your uh, career history, sir. Okay. Uh, so in uh, 1987, I was a graduate student uh, studying aeronautics, working on a doctorate. And uh, at that time... You know, I'd been a model airplane guy since I was a kid, and, it, you know, computers were shrinking in size, and it became obvious that we could put computers in essentially model airplanes and record data, put sensors on them, do feedback control experiments. So I started a small company called MLB. Uh, that's the initials of the three of us that's, that were in the company. It, it, you know, this is before the Internet, so naming a company MLB would be a really dumb idea today because Major League Baseball – but back then, it didn't seem like a big deal, and everyone could spell it. So uh, we built a small computer, you know, 68020-based uh, computer that was easily programmable and hooked it up to sensors and shoved it in a, a, a demonstrator aircraft. It was a highly unstable flying wing, and 
showed that, look, we can stabilize this thing and collect data. And some other uh, industry people, I think AeroVironment was one of our early customers, and then uh, a company that eventually was acquired by McDonnell Douglas. They, they had these prototypes that they needed a flight com- control system. So we hand-built these things, sold them, and did consulting on the stability and control side. And that, you know, that sort of lasted for on and off over uh, like a 10-year period. And then GPS suddenly became miniaturized onto a chipset. And that's when I realized I could finally build a fully autonomous airplane that can navigate somewhat precisely and maybe carry cameras and do interesting things. And, you know, back then you could still technically fly under 400 feet without restriction if you were under 55 pounds, just through the model airplane sort of, you know, uh, agreement that that they had with the FAA. There weren't all the new restrictions yet. So there was, it seemed there was a real business opportunity to do aerial mapping. And I was targeting agriculture as the first, you know, real market. So I just built everything from scratch. You know, we had to make our own autopilots and we had to write all the software, uh, build some composite airframes. And I had friends who, who they, they built hang gliders that I helped design. So we had a, a second company that did that. And I eventually absorbed that into my company. So that was the airframe side. And, uh, you know, we even built our own gimbal cameras and catapult launchers. And, you know, that was a lot of work to bootstrap all that and hope that the industry would develop around us. Um, and this, this is the weirdest part is that, um, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley here, but we didn't raise any money. This was all bootstrapped from just, you know, personal savings. And we were lucky to get a few research grants from uh, universities and people who wanted to partner with us because the airplane was flying and working pretty quickly. And so we could sell them, you know, like 20 grand. You could buy a complete ready-to-fly uh, fixed-wing drone with a small model airplane engine. It would fly a few hours. And uh, that was a reasonable price, and we sold a bunch of those. And then we just kept evolving that. And mostly it was research labs, government, you know, government and universities. Uh, the, the commercial thing, you know, this, uh, you know, the 9-11 attacks, of course, 2001, and then all the regulations started to kick in. And so the commercial thing died off with the regulations picking up. But we stayed, tried to stay commercial as long as we could. And eventually it was clear that the money was in the military and we weren't positioned there. Um, and uh, so I had to eventually pivot, you know, to, to start to work more with the military, which is very difficult to do when you're a five person company without a lot of cash in the bank. So that was always a rocky road. Um, so somewhere in there, <clears throat> we developed a line of fixed-wing aircraft. I'd say the, the, they all were named BAT. And BAT was just because uh, – that had nothing to do with the baseball and the MLB thing. It's because, um, you know, I just – the first airplane we built was like a little flying wing, and it, I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. We could fly it at night. It's like a BAT. But um, – uh, so I just started calling everything bat, and you know the last iteration of that was the super bat, which was a about a eight foot wingspan, fifty pound aircraft that could fly eleven hours with a stabilized gimbal, catapult launch, skid landing, you know, fully autonomous, and worked reasonably well. It had a little Zenoa gas engine on it, and we built you know the whole thing except we were putting cloud cap autopilots in at the end because our military customers wanted the, the Taze mm-hmm. gimbal was sort of the standard back then, and they all wanted that, so we stopped putting our own autopilots in it. Um, 
but in 2004, I invented this thing called the V-Bat because I realized that people don't want to drag a catapult out in the field. They don't want to have to find a field to land the plane in, even with skids. And it was really obvious that even an aircraft like the Scan Eagle, which worked really well off of ships, you had to put a crane and a launcher on the deck of the ship to operate a Scan Eagle. So I figured if I'm going to get in the military, the market is getting rid of all the infrastructure. Build one simple airplane that can do VTOL. And, you know, this is before lithium batteries and quadcopters and all that. So the VBAT has a single engine in a ducted fan system on the back of what looks like a normal airplane. And it can hover and transition. And, you know, we, we developed all the software, flight control. We used our own computer. Um, I mean, did everything from scratch. But it was self-funded, so it, it kind of lingered over a 10-year period until we got an SBIR grant from the Air Force to, to, to like, finish it up. And then we had it, you know, flying fully autonomous. And coincidentally, around that time, I was losing money like crazy, going through a lot of personal debt. <laughs> because what? People, you know, we, we didn't have a military customer, but we had military-type aircraft. So quadcopters were being used by most of the labs. They didn't need an 11-hour capable aircraft that they could only fly at 400 feet in visual range. So anyway... Um, I eventually had to sell my company pretty pretty low end, the price for the business, and uh, that I sold to Martin UAV. Now, Martin is not Lockheed Martin. Martin is the name of an individual who uh, who bought the company. I became CTO and worked there a couple of years, then had a sudden departure. <laughs> I won't go into all the details, um, <laughs> and uh, didn't work. You know, so I, I, it, by the time I left, we had the VBAT flying in uh, military missions, um, we were actually paid to replace the Scan Eagle on some of those missions. And I thought that was a really nice accomplishment to have this airplane, you know, just designed by a few guys kind of, you know, take on Boeing. And, uh, and now uh, VBAT is doing really well. Martin has been acquired by Shield AI for a few mm-hmm. hundred million bucks. I don't know the exact price. And, uh, you know, VBAT has won a lot of these down selects for uh, FTUAS. It was one of the two down selects, and for the MI2 naval thing, it was the only uh, winner of the down selects. And it's essentially the same aircraft we had 10 years ago with a different engine and uh, you know a lot of refinements that make it robust for the military, but the configuration and shape are almost identical, and uh, the flight controls and all that. Um, so uh, I'll just finish up here with the bio. Uh, I, because of my sudden departure at Martin, I was advised to not take a job in the drone industry for a while because until things <laughs> settled down over how that was uh, proceeding. And I worked in the medical industry for two years doing advanced technology development. And then I came back and I'm working at Valancey helping them design their next generation of vertical takeoff and landing cargo aircraft. So I'll pause. <laughs> Well, no, uh, you know, uh, you, you're, you're not going to flash back into the 1987 pan and not, you know, that, that's why we have you, we have you on here. And, you know, me and uh, Gene were talking and we were wondering when it happened. And so there's a lot to unpack here and we're going to do that. So, you know, um, I remember the, the V bat and I remember the bat and the super bat and all the rest of that. And I know Gene does. And I want to, you know, absolutely. Like, oh, well, you know, uh, these, these quadcopters and stuff. And that's another thing. I, 
I remember seeing the bat at a, at a uh, Silicon Valley chapter meeting. And I want to say this is back in 2008 or nine, and maybe you were there, but that was, that was the meeting at NASA where I, uh, when I was asking all the federals, Hey man, what are you guys going to do when the thousand dollar Chinese UAV shows up? Do, do, you, do you happen to remember that event or? Oh yeah. I think it was an FAA meeting. And I, I, I was <laughs> one of the founders of the Silicon Valley chapter, AVSI, and I, yeah, I remember being there, and, you know, even at that time, it, it, it's like I'd go to the meetings and listen to all this, but I felt, you know, a, a lack of power to do much. But I, I remember your, your speech there. Yeah, they, they tried to laugh me out of the room because they're like, oh, it's never going to happen. And I'm like, what? what? What are you, crazy? But, you know, the, the other thing with that, you know, you were talking about these markets and bootstrapping, and I am interested to understand, you know, because everybody, it seems like the, the goose that laid the golden egg is, I'm going to get some VC funding, you know, I think, was it you? <laughs> okay, you could probably remember this, too, because this is, this is like a, v, or a uh, Silicon Valley insider deal, but remember the cylinder debacle? <laughs> was it you that was like, where's oh, yeah. my $500 million? <laughs> It might have been somebody else. No. I thought it was you that was like, and now, well, you know what I could do? No, I, see, see, for me, I'm not, I'm not a really good businessman. I mean, just be upfront about it. I was naive about, <laughs> I, you know, I I'm identify. In, <laughs> yeah, so I'm in Silicon Valley. Everybody's raising money, but I was scared to death. I didn't understand how that worked. I, I just wanted to create a, a decent small business to support me and my friends. I mean, that's because the people I was working with, you know, we built hang gliders and we were losing money like crazy building the highest performing hang gliders in the world, but they only sold for $10,000 and they cost 15000 to make. So, you know, we were idiots about that too. And we were in the wrong market because nobody wants to hang glide. So, you know, here we had all these really capable, super motivated, smart people losing their shirts. And I figured, you know, I can at least support this team. And we did. We, you know, we, we made it through, you know, the, the recessions and all that, you know, 08 collapse. I mean, without any funding, you know, we, we made it off of just our business that we, you know, we adapted. Sometimes we were selling airplanes. Sometimes we were lucky enough to be tagged on to other people's research contracts. But it's, you know, the, the, this idea of raising money, uh, I did talk to a few investors, just, but they, I couldn't speak their language. They needed to be told. Uh, you know, a really impossible story. And I just told them exactly what I saw and what the risks were. So that I, I really sucked at selling. And um, anyway, it never really worked out. And uh, I'll just add one last thing to that is that occasionally people say, oh, you started this company, you wanted to be an entrepreneur. I said, no, I never even heard of the word entrepreneur till whatever. And I literally could not work for other people. So I started this company so I wouldn't be homeless. And I'm not joking. I mean, I don't get along in the workplace very well. And I, uh, you know, I, ha I had to do this for survival so that I had a way to make a living. And my friends were slightly similar, you know, in our background to me. And Justify. I didn't want them to, you know, I wanted to support my team. And that's all it was really about. Well, you're always welcome. Me and Gene are going to start this uh, chainsaw bear carving business, and you're welcome, <laughs> sir, to join. We'll, we'll put you on the board. We're just looking for money for uh, oil and gasoline right now, but uh, maybe a, a chain sharpening <laughs> tool. 
Now, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of all, you know, this Maverick thing. And I, and I, it, it's funny, too, is just another uh, Silicon Valley VC insider deal. Don't let the engineers talk to the money people. Do not let them near, anywhere near that because they're like, well, you know, these are the, you know, these are the obstacles we have to overcome and we've got to come up with these solutions. And the eyebrows go up and these guys are like, what? You know, I'm not going to make a billion dollars in three quarters. I'm out of here. You know, so that's a whole nother um, story. So, you know, we know that. And then also, I'm sure, you know, we've had other people on the show that have talked about, you know, uh, companies coming in and saying, hey, we want to invest and, you know, we want to give you some money. And they're like, oh, yeah, I want money. I want to be able to work on some projects. And the next thing you know, they're, you know, kicking you out of your own company. So it's it's a dangerous game to play, for sure. But, you know. You did a pretty good job, and I know it must have been really frustrating. There's another reason we had you on here. Some of us on this uh, program are frustrated with the uh, regulatory and the business side of this. So you know, no, you're talking on. I'm okay, except for Gene. So <laughs> here you are. You're like, I'm looking for markets, and you were here before the policy clarification too. And like you said, I'm selling aircraft, right? And uh, I even had people when I was on the ARC at the FAA go, well, you shouldn't have got into an illegal business. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about because it was totally legal. And you alluded to this before where it was the same, you know, hey, man, you could go out and you could fly and you could fly in any airspace you wanted. You called the tower. We we had uh, procedures in place and things were working. And, you know, you're selling aircraft and you're bootstrapping. And uh, and then all of a sudden, one day, like a light switch, it went off. And, you know, and then with ITAR, too, you know, uh, I think that this is another thing that I think people discount, like, let's say, with the uh, overseas manufacturers. With ITAR, you know, uh, were, were they, uh, you know, who were you, were you selling to people all over the world, or, or did you have uh, control yeah. issues? No, ITAR is a huge thing. We We could have probably survived with ease of international sales, but... Yeah, all mm-hmm. that stuff kicked in after 9-11 and, you know, going through a lot of our stuff in the early classifications, we were falling under missile technology just because of the right. duration range. You know, they had all yep. different criteria back then. And, yeah, it, it, and they, uh, the people from the three-letter agencies would visit me each year and say, you know, if anyone contacts mm-hmm. you about buying this, give us their info. We want to go check them out. And I'm like, okay, I'll scratch your back, but I can't sell to Canada. You know, I can't. You know, I can't do any business outside the U.S., and it's, it's killing me because um, people wanted these things. And, um, you know, I only needed to sell five airplanes a year to stay afloat because <laughs> we were such a lean company. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, ITAR was a big deal. And then uh, they, they had the creeping uh, regulatory stuff. Uh, just, you know, at first we could just stay under 400 feet and we'd fly all over the place and, you know, just pretend like, Hey, I'm a model airplane and the rules didn't say anything about line of sight, you know, free flight model airplanes could drift miles away and nobody cared. And they technically could be under 55 pounds, which is crazy to think about, but that's how the rules were written. And I read them carefully and I built a business to fall right into that niche and that niche dried up or, really quick <laughs> yeah like a light switch and uh yeah that, that was the deal and uh so you know we talk about that all the time on the show it was just like it was over in one day uh february was it february 7th of february, february 7th. 13th as a matter of fact yes of 2007 and it was the party uh came to a crashing end 
So, uh, yeah, it's pretty hard to uh, have a successful company where you can't sell. And then we're, we're going to get into the government thing right now because it was the same deal. It's like my, my business, I'm like, boom, I'm out of business. Everything I've invested is, and I'm sure I didn't invest anywhere near you did what you did, Steve. Uh, but I, I'm like, I'm done. Put a fork in it. It's over. You know, all of the, the BD that I've done all of the talking to people till I'm blue in the face and uh, you know, whatever else and the innovations that were all happening were all over like in one day and uh, FAA, Oh, 60, 90 days. We're going to have rules, man. And you're going to be right back in business. I'm like, great. Cause mom and pop can't hold out. And it took what? Nine years for us to get regulations mm-hmm. that uh, stink. You really can't do anything with them, but that's, that's a whole nother you know, science discussion that we'll get into. But I do want to talk about the, the, the products that you uh, invented and came out because Gene also has some experience with this. And Gene was in the same boat where it was over in one day and then you had yeah. to start looking for a government job. So Gene, take it away with the, uh, the NIST stuff because I thought this was, this was really useful. Um, this is, you know, people, oh, you can use drones to – go ahead, Gene – Tell us what you yeah, yeah, that for. was yeah. Well, you know, aside from <laughs> what I usually do, but uh, the the NIST project was pretty good. And Steve, I, I got to tell you how this one ended because we uh, we used the Superbat, which is the catapult launched skid landing uh, aircraft with the uh, stabilized gimbal on it. Had the Taze Duo, just as you discussed it, and we had five of those things. Uh, I was the chief pilot for NIST and that project. And you got to look at Steve came out to, to, to little old Wimberley here. And we went out to the ranch and him and his guys set everything up and walked us through the training. And uh, uh, Steve, you guys actually built the, or, or just built a shell of the trailer, right? Uh, we, we bought a trailer and we stuffed it full of uh, all that stuff to support the planes and the ground station and the tracking antenna and, Make sure you had air conditioning and a generator. <laughs> yeah, that, that's I would, and, and that's the most important lesson I learned is the air conditioning and the generator. But that's another story. Uh, and then when we got it, we stuffed it full of even more stuff, you know, to to go out into the field and do the wildland urban interface fire research project. And we wanted to be like the best thing because it was NIST. We wanted to be all compliant with the FAA. We were going to set the example for the FAA. And so we did. We set up our procedures and the whole black box thing, and we recorded, you know, video of all the positions that were flying. And we had to fly all five of those aircraft for at least an hour every 45 days. And we did that for almost three years. And I have got to say that we never, ever – had a mishap or an unscheduled landing, and those aircraft performed flawlessly in every situation that we put them in. So, I mean, kudos to you, Steve, and and your crew on that one because that was a great experience for me, and those birds just did exactly what we expected of them and more because we we ended up pushing them, and uh, we never had a failure. Which, you know, I, I think is a tribute to the amount of engineering that you put into them and the thought that you put into the systems to get it done. I mean, sure, we had our little firmware issues that we had to get with cloud cap on and, you know, get straightened out and this, that, and the other thing. But, 
you know, it was it was nothing. So we ended up making it all the way through that that uh, that that whole project, and we ended up collecting more data than the Forestry Service could ever parse out in the next five years. It should be done by about now, I think. But I tried really, really, yeah. I tried really, really hard to keep those airframes in Texas, and NIST agreed to give them to the the, the Texas Rangers. And uh, at the time, uh, you know, we met down in the secret bunker in, you know, underground Austin and with all the head sheds, and they said, oh, we don't do drones. We just don't do drones. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is over a million dollars worth of gear, and you can have it. No, we don't do drones. Yeah, well, (laughs) not only that frustration, you know, because it's about me, but when that program came to an end and I remember you were like, well, you know, we're, we're talking about doing some more. I mean, I'm, I'm here in uh, Northern California and it's smoky. Cause guess what? Yeah. It's summertime yeah. and there's forest fires in California. Who would have thunk it? And, uh, um, you know, so the work was really good. I thought you guys were doing a good thing. I'd really, I'd like to see that continue. And even now, uh, you know, it's 2021. Here we are. We've got these fires raging. Um, yep. Frustrated uh, myself, but I, I was, I remember watching that and you talking about it and explaining it and just going, man, this, this is really cool. And, uh, and I'm impressed too, Steve, with the uh, quality of your products. Uh, Gene always said good things. I remember the super bat, you had the, uh, had the, uh, I forget what you guys called it, but it was like a face shield because you guys came in on a skin. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, you had yep. your, your, your gimbal up front. So, you know, maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, uh, some of the uh, nuances of, of engineering this system. I, I know you said, you know, it's a catapult and things like that. But, but that ca- yeah, the capture so- mechanism for, for, like, Scan Eagle, that, that if anybody's seen that, that, that there's a lot of energy. It's, it's really kind of a violent thing. So you decided to skid. Tell us about it. Well, first, thanks, Gene and Patrick, for the kind words about the product. That's that's like the best thing for someone like me to ever hear. That's more important than the money. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, you know, we were a small company. You know, we couldn't do everything perfectly by any means. But we, you know, we flew our own stuff. We always, we, you know, we built something. We tested it extensively before shipping it. And you know, I did at that time. I was doing almost all the flying, so you know, I knew exactly what these things did. And I felt I always had a decent gut feel for, you know, a product should be robust and straightforward to use. I, I'll just say I didn't really love the ground, the ground station on CloudCap. I think that the MLB ground station was easier to use, but we didn't have the integration with the Taze gimbal and all the features, so we had to switch over. But, um, you know, that that's just a – it was always a philosophy was that you, we would often just throw uh, an airplane, all, everything we needed to fly, a couple people in a small SUV, and we were, you know, we, we had to go out to just a remote field and be able to fly in 15 minutes. If our, if any of our products couldn't, you know, satisfy that, we felt that we weren't building anything useful. And I, it was only later in life that I end up in the field with large groups of people, tractor trailers full of stuff, and you know, yeah. and I think that this really helped the VBAT when it got in with the military. That it was from day one. We would throw the VBAT in my SUV. Two of us would go down to the field, and we didn't, you know, I sometimes would go down there by myself and just have that thing in the air in 15 minutes doing missions. And if you can build the system that way, then people can add all the complication they want. But you can always strip it down to the minimum and be successful. Um, 
But on the technical side, yeah. So Superbat, you know, landed on skids. It was, and it didn't even have a a system for doing a flare. It was designed to come in at about a, I think it was a seven degree glide slope and just hit the ground without breaking. And you know, if the the ground didn't have big rocks and was somewhat smooth, you, you could land this thing over and over again with minimal damage. If it, you know, got out of hand, of course, you know, any airplane can't land in an unimproved field without wheels. Or, 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 or some huge landing gear, so it wouldn't survive that. But uh, So we made the plane robust with a shock-absorbing landing gear, and, yeah, the gimbal's on the front, and it's super expensive, the most expensive thing in the airplane, so we made a carbon face shield, just like an astronaut's helmet, and it would you could uh, deploy or retract it depending on whether you were taking off and landing or just cruising around, or if you got into rain, you could drop it and keep water off the lenses. And we even had that on the VBAT, although the latest version's they don't use that anymore because of the way they launch and recover it. Um, other things we did, you know, quick disassembly, all uh, push-button connections on wings and tails, so no tools required. Um, try to build the system for minimal pre-flight uh, with CloudCap. That, that changed because they have a rather extensive pre-flight for their autopilot. The MLB systems, you could get them in the air in just a few minutes. And, you know, a lot of this, when you see what DJI did to rise in the marketplace, this is what they did. They made drones simple to use, and so they made them a consumer product. And we really wanted to lean that way. We, you know, I was very frustrated with, like, the cloud caps and other autopilot manufacturers who were building things for engineers. It's kind of like someone sells you an HP calculator when you wanted a TI. You know, you just wanted to say 3 plus 3 equals. And, you know, the, the, the DJI understood that and built a simple-to-use product, got enough of them out there that they could then wedge open some airspace through the FAA because so many people had these things. Um, we were trying to do something similar but on a different size scale with bigger airplanes because, you know, we came in so early, we couldn't, we weren't, there was no such thing as a quadcopter. Um, let me see if there's anything else on the technology that I wanted to mention. Um, I mean, VBAT itself is, I think, is technologically interesting because of its simplicity. A single gasoline engine that does everything, VTOL and cruise, no gimbling or collective pitch or any of those complicated things, just eight control vanes in the back of the duct. Uh, mm-hmm. Airframe is super simple. The only thing complicated about VBAT is the software. Um, as far as I know, nobody's imitated it, and I think it's because they don't know how to transition the thing. And th- what happened with figuring out how to do what I call transition at trim, where the VBAT doesn't lose any altitude during transition, um, that was one of the few times in my career I calculated a result before I tested it, and it worked. <laughs> um, That's I, nice. I was doing simulations <laughs> of, you know, I was simulating how much wind could we hover the VBAT in. And I found out that I could have wind all the way up to transition speed, and it would still maintain equilibrium. And that's transition to trim. I said, oh, I could transition 10 feet off the ground. I, I just do it. And so we went out, tuned up the controller over a several-week period, and sure enough, we're going like zero to 70 miles an hour and then 70 back to zero, and the altitude hardly changed. And I was like, holy crap, this is awesome. And you Because know, I have an airplane, unlike these um, separate lift thrust designs that use electric power, VBAT can hover for hours. You know, I could go, I could go straight up thousands of feet and then transition, or I could transition at 3,000 feet above the ground, hover straight down like into a jungle. You know, the other VTOLs had these low approach patterns, and I could just hover, I could stop in the middle of the mission and hover and look at things. Um, 
so I, I just love that airplane. And you could you know stand right next to it, and there were no exposed rotors. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. those are features more than technology. Anyway, I'll shut up now. <laughs> no, no, it's, no, it's all good. Um, if, if, if anybody wants to see some of that engineering in use, if you can go to my YouTube channel, it's Gene Robinson SAR, and underneath that you'll see one that's called WUI, WUI. Uh, there is a that's a, a three and a half minute video of assembling the super bat and putting it together. I mean, it's not a V bat, um, unfortunately, but uh, and I thought I was going to maybe get an opportunity to fly a V bat with Martin Aviation because of my experience with the super bats. But you know, again, Steve, I was kind of like you didn't pan out. I'm a corporate refugee as well, so. Um, <laughs> You know, it's one of those things. But if you want to see the Superbat, that movie is up there. It's still up there. I think it's one of the, the, the great aircraft that uh, that I've flown in my career. And, uh, you know, hey, if you come up with anything else and need a test pilot, I'm all I'm all up for it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks. Well, that, yeah, that's a, and that's a good glowing endorsement from our field guy. Because, you know, you, you ran over a few things. But we have to, uh, at some point, we're going to probably have to have the CloudCat bash program. <laughs> So anybody that's worked with it's like, hmm. I, I worked. I, I remember the Navy was like, oh God, it's the best thing since sliced bread. And I'm like, really? Uh, uh, okay, if you say so. But anyway, that's another program, and you know, probably get hate mail on that. What are you talking about? This is the best thing since sliced bread. Anyway, but uh, the other thing you said, Steve, you know, you're like, hey, I was, the, you know, did a lot of flying, and you were the test pilot, and you're out in the field, and it's me and Gene always reinforce is man that is where the rubber meets the road is out in the field and, and you you know talking about ease of uh, assembly and launch you want to be in the air in 15 minutes and uh, there's a couple of things out in the field one of them is is you're usually out there and it's either hot or cold um, and whatever tools you brought is all you got and the uh, the only other good thing is, is there's usually not people around and you can scream obscenities as loud as you like so, you know, uh, and those are, those are the uh, trials and tribulations about the field. So if you have something that's easy to put together, you know, uh, is robust and all the rest of that stuff, that's, that's really where it's at. You know, and I always say that you get that some engineers don't like to leave the air conditioning and uh, get good products in the field when that's your, like, say, M.O. Um so yeah, all all good stuff. And now you know you did, you know, and we we didn't do the uh, the current events part of the show because we we went right into the technology part. So I do want to talk about current events now. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, but before we get into that, I want to talk about you know as they're called the flying cars. And I'm sure you watch these uh, sizzle reels like I do, and you're like, well, there's definitely not enough lens flare in this video to. Uh, you know, get a good ROI, I can tell, you know, but I, I look at these aircraft and I'm like, you know, who, who is designing this stuff? Would you like to talk about your uh, overall impressions of the AAM, UAM flying car Jetson thing? Uh, well, there's a lot of vaporware out there. There's, that's for sure. I mean, there's, uh, I think a lot of, there's definitely designs that are, that are only going to work when batteries uh, become substantially more energy dense and more and, and more power dense. But that aside, uh, the basic business model, um, you know, like I said, I'm not a businessman, so anything I say, take it with a grain of salt. I still don't completely understand why 
if this business opportunity exists, why the helicopter as it exists today with automation is so fundamentally flawed that it couldn't capture some of that market now. But every time people say they, you know, they did a trial, like Airbus did a trial with helicopters, and they said, well, we didn't think we were going to make money. Now, so my question is, how do you make money just by switching to electric? Now, people say, oh, it'll be more reliable, safer, and less noise. But uh, you know, helicopters and FAA-certified airframes have been around for decades and has proven, you know, regardless of what you think about its safety, it is known, whereas all the UAM stuff is unknown. It has, I agree that electric has the potential to be more reliable if done right, but software-driven airplanes crash usually because of one line of code being wrong. And without the standards and the rigor, you know, you could have the most uh, electric propulsive redundancy in the world, and this thing's still going to go down if you've got one bad line of code. I mean, just, just go look at Boeing a few years ago with a 737 MAX. So I, this is, it is very speculative. Um, I don't understand the whole infrastructure thing. How do you – I mean, you look at um, – uh, electric VTOLs are weight inefficient. Their payload mass fractions are, are low. So you've got big, heavy, expensive airplanes carrying small numbers of people. Um, now, if you keep the maintenance and uh, an acquisition cost low enough, you can build a business around that. But they're, you know, they're short-duration trips, so they, they have to be in these urban areas. And you know, I haven't punched all the numbers. I'm sure if you can neglect the infrastructure build-out, building out the fleet, you know, if you had that all in place, there's probably a way to make money on the margins, but that's a huge bet. And I've already lost my shirt three times over in aviation. So I'm happy to help people work on airplanes like that, but I don't have the money to put into anything like that. And you, you know, a lot of people are going to make money off of their, um, you know, acquisitions and going public. It's the question is who's going to make money off of actual revenue. And then, so that was the technology side. We didn't even talk about regulatory. First, you got to type certify an entirely different aircraft. You know, VTOL modes, fly-by-wire, passenger carrying, perhaps no pilot. And when you add all that up, um, the regulatory hurdles are huge. And, you know, we all know the FAA is, rightfully so, has a do-no-harm stance. So who knows, what, you know, the timeline – to make money off of these things could be, you know, 10, 20 years. It, it, it's hard to say. Um, so I, I you know, it, it's, it's a great time for innovation, but, uh, you know, I, I just wonder if you couldn't solve the need with just a helicopter. Well, well, you know, a helicopter is 10,000 parts all trying to move away from each other at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah, the problem with the helicopter. Well, that and they're expensive. When you look, at, and, when you look at the statistics, though, helicopters have – their accident rate tracks with the danger of the mission they do, and they have a surprisingly low fatality rate, and I think it's because they can auto-rotate, whereas none of these uh, VTOLs can auto-rotate. So they have redundancy in their propulsion. But like I said, you know, if, we, if they end up having software errors or a primary propulsion failure – they're going in, and history has shown. You know, if you go look up the history of New York Airways, they operated helicopter taxi service in New York, and they also yep. did something like that in San Francisco. And they carry, I think, half half a million passengers. You know, Pan Am building in New York, and they had a very public accident where uh, one of their helicopters, the landing gear strut failed because they're using old surplus helicopters, and it it wasn't even in the air when this happened, and it chopped a bunch of people up waiting to get in it. 
parts fell down into the streets of New York and killed someone also, so six, seven people killed. They were, that, that operation shut down with the first fatality because the public wouldn't tolerate being at the mercy of dis- destruction so that you know, well-to-do people could have an air taxi. And similarly, an accident in the San Francisco area shut that operation down. So the question is, is UAM going to end the day of the first accident? I, I don't know the answer to that. And uh, that's another risk. Yeah, there's a lot of questions. There was also uh, L.A. Airways did a uh, helicopter thing, and they had two high-profile crashes uh, on the Disneyland run, and a bunch of kids died and stuff. It was ugly. Uh, But you you are right. That is something. Now, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the Churchill Club. I went to – they asked me to come because I'm one of those guys that I'll – you know, I'm a sucker – you know, go ahead, ask the hard questions, you know, and uh, so they had the people up there on the panel, and they had the FAA, and Joe Ben was there, and, you know, the guy from Uber, and they're talking about 42 cents a passenger mile, man. I'm like, God, we, you know, one, what are you guys smoking? And uh, I, don't, I don't do drugs, but if I did, I'd probably be trying to buy some pot off them. But uh, I'm like, this is crazy talk, number one. And number two, I asked Joe Ben, I said, hey, man. I go, I, I've been working with the FAA on integrating what we know now as a floor of a 251-gram drone into the NAS for 17, 18 years, and we can't even get that together, man. And, and you're talking about doing this flying car thing. When do you think you're going to have type certification? And he came back and he said, oh, 2020. I'm like, really? Really? Oh, okay. You know, and I'm still waiting. And I know we had COVID and all the rest of that, but I, 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 I'm like you. I think these guys are dreaming. I see the infrastructure, um, you know, models that they have, and it's like I don't know how. I look, I look at it like an aircraft carrier, you know, and you got five thousand people, and and their thing is to get a few hundred sorties a day going, and these people to to make those margins work, you're going to have thousands of aircraft in the air at all times and you're going to use people that drive the uber car at 12 bucks an hour being the cruise I, just doesn't add up to me gene you want to get in here and, and uh ingratiate yourself with the bc community <laughs> come on uh, you know yeah the, the whole technology thing it's, it's like uh you know the wright brothers could have flown well before 1903 had they had a better power plant you know i mean that's history uh i agree with steve that uh, to a certain extent, I'm not I'm not much of a helicopter fan myself. Um, sorry guys, I'm a planker. Um, you know, my little 172 gets me to and fro, and I love it. But um, you know, the the whole flying car thing, mm, you know, uh, it, it's going to be a ways. Uh, they're waiting on new batteries and new motors and new technology, and it's going to take that to get it done. And uh, it ain't happening. It ain't happening anytime soon. Well, I, I think one of the things is is that really that the, the people that invest, and it's almost the same thing with the drone people. Uh, most of them are not public policy people or aviation people. And I use the example of the, you know, the, and I hate to, you know, oh, the Kobe Bryant crash or whatever, but everybody talks like about these, you know, onesie, twosie flights as the crow flies, you know, it's all going to be open. And as we saw in in, in that incident, there's lots of traffic in, uh, in in over Los Angeles, and people have to hold and wait and all the rest of that. And Steve, you alluded to the, the battery density energy thing, and you're going to have a quarter reserve and all the rest. Of it. I mean, I just – I mean, is, I, 
I don't know. I look at it and I'm like, just, just, I just don't understand, you know, how this is going to add up. And maybe my Texas instrument calculator is no bueno. I don't know. But it, what do you think? I mean, <laughs> what do you think? I mean, you know, is it like, wow, we got, man, there's some serious stuff to work out here and give me a couple of billion and I can do it for you or, or what? So I don't know what's coming down the pipeline with batteries, but uh, so you know, this issue of like reserves and all, I know that a lot of the manufacturers are in terms of like range or numbers of takeoffs and landings, they're building in, you know, reserves. Like you can, you can do so many uh, missed approaches or you could uh, go so many extra miles, but in terms of duration, they don't have it. Like to say you have a half, have to have a 30 minute reserve for any contingency, 30 minutes is still a huge fraction of the maximum amount that any of these planes can fly. So they don't have time. They have distance or approach attempts. That, that That's kind of their reserve. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, For me, it comes down to would you get into an airplane where you have to be on the ground by a certain time or you're going to die? Because that's how these planes operate. Now, you could make, you know, Aviation is amazing at what people have done to create reliability. The airline industry is a testimonial to it. It took decades to get there. Um, can this completely new industry with new technology ramp up to that, you know, 10 to the minus ninth level quickly enough and not kill anyone in the process? Because I still worry that the first fatality and the whole thing, you know, just shuts down. And I'm not going to bet against innovators like Joe Ben. I mean, what he's done is absolutely amazing. I, mm-hmm. You know, I still think there's a, a ways to go. Uh, but, you know, he could be the Elon Musk of the air. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to bet against anything anymore because every time I do, I tend to lose. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is a long bet with big risks. It's for big players, you know, like Larry Page and big corporates who want to put money into this. And, you know, maybe they'll shape the future or maybe, you know, maybe it'll fizzle out. I mean, we, you know, m- m- most of us can remember at least reading about in the 1950s all the, the – the, the excitement around VTOL and, and, and you're flying anywhere you want, you know, personal air mobility and, and all of that, you know, we got better helicopters out of it, but we didn't get our flying cars. Um, it, 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 this, this, this thing has resurgence every so often. Electric propulsion, you know, maybe will tip the scales because of the reduced maintenance, helpful reliability, uh, you know, the simplicity, the noise and all that. But, I don't know. I don't know if that's enough to make economics work out or, or to break through these regulatory barriers. Uh, on the regulation, I will say that, you know, almost everyone's going to fly with a pilot at first. And certifying an airplane for piloted operation, uh, there's, there's pathways in there. Um, the unmanned version of it is, is a much longer road. I, I concur with that. And, you know, I don't you – know, and I have to always, uh, you know, kind of – preface my comments with, I don't think like, you know, as far as technology is concerned, it's like, you know, I tell you, I told, they say this all the time. So we put these people on the moon 50 years ago and brought them back. Okay. So uh, Americans have proven themselves to like, Hey, if there's a technological problem, you know, we throw enough money at it. Um, we can come up with a solution. So I believe the same as you. So I believe that the technology is possible and it can happen. Is there enough investment? Is there enough stomach? You know, somebody have the, the, the stomach to hang in there to make this happen. Now, that's the question. And I do think, you know, it's every time I hear the numbers, the same deal when they rolled out the UTM thing. Oh, you know, NASA, we're going to put $110 million at this. Okay, well, what do you want to do? Well, everything. It's not enough money. 
you know, oh, Debbie Downer, you know, it's just, it's just not enough money. I mean, um, so I, I think the application of money for the technology and uh, certification and things like that is, is you're, you're totally correct. There are people that were in the drone world that are getting into the AAM world and they're like, yeah, we're going to do this without a pilot and I'm the certification guy. And you just uh, hit the nail on the head. It's like, good luck with that one, you know, because uh, that, that's a, uh, a hard, hard road to hoe, or it's going to cost a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort. Same thing you talked about, you know, code. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been banging that DO-178 variant drum for a long time on certifying the code for, for flight and all the rest of that stuff. Have you been through that, the DO certification variant certification, Steve? No, um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't fly drones for fun anymore or it, like where I work now, we have uh, other people that do all the flight ops, but I, uh, my whole career in aviation is very weird. You know, I, I always got in before anything was required. So, you know, I had thousands of hours on UAVs before anybody said you had to do anything. And then um, there was a point, a point where they said, if you're to operate, this is for a, maybe a military thing I was doing. You had to pass an FAA medical, and I went and took it, and I, there's some medication I was taking. I couldn't pass that. Mm-hmm. And now I can't get a pilot's license, which I've never had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm like, every, everything I try to do with aviation, I'm kind of screwed. Uh, I don't have a pilot's license, but I've been hang gliding for 40 years, and I don't have any drone certification, but I've got thousands of hours uh, on them. I just, fly, I just fly small RC models and ornithopters and weird stuff for fun. <laughs> well, yeah, Gene went through some of that too with the uh, the medical thing and whatnot, and, and I, I thought all of that was just way over the top. The other thing, you know, and I we, we we are running long, and the live part is gone, but it's still recording. But uh, you know, I, just you know, you're an engineer too. The science part of this, remember, they were talking about all of the risk, and it's like there's 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 no science to back up the assertions that the FAA was making about how unsafe this was. And, uh, you know, it turns out that it's, it's not, you know, the, the, let's say, evidence that we see, it's, it's, it's pretty safe for, for the smaller stuff. Um, and, and that's kind of a frustration with me. But before we close, uh, we did cover a lot of real estate, Steve. So, you know, is there, um, is there anything that, that we missed that you wanted to mention or maybe a website where we could see what you're working on or? <laughs> I, I don't have a personal website. I have a YouTube channel, uh, S Morris M L B C O just all letters stuck together. Just my name and MLB company. And so S Morris M L B C O, but, uh, you know, that just has random projects. Sometimes you'll see me hang gliding. Sometimes it's model airplanes. Occasionally it's me crashing a motorcycle. But um, just you know, personal. But I have I have hundreds of videos up there, and I have you know historically. I mean, you can go back and see Superbat videos. You can see early VBAT development. I, I put a lot of stuff up there because I always wanted to be open about what I was doing to you know just to see if anybody had common interest to generate business. I you know I always had published prices for my products, and I always told people what I had and tried to be you know upfront and honest about it so that. You know, when we did talk, they knew what it would cost and they knew what they were getting. So websites still, I mean, the YouTube channel is kind of the same thing. This is what I'm doing. This is where I'm at. Yep. Um, other than that, I, uh, yeah, I don't have anything else. I'm just uh, plugging along here. <laughs> and uh, it, it is, you know, it is amazing uh, 
where this whole drone, how the whole drone trajectory is gone. And, you know, the, the development now is on the AI and uh, navigation in cluttered areas. Th those are the features that are driving a lot of the consumer drones, you know, like the Skydio and, and, and that kind of stuff. And in the, the bigger drones, you know, the ISR market was the bread and butter for military. And uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's still going to persist. And, and, and the capabilities are going to shrink in size because ISR, you can shrink. But now the cargo is coming on. Um, that's going to make drones get bigger again because you can't have a tiny drone carrying a thousand pound weight. So it, everything's interesting, and um, I'm just happy that I can still do something. I would agree with that. I agree with what you just said there, and I, I uh, do. I, I've kind of taken. I, I got frustrated at times, and I step back, and, and I, you know, get back in because I, I, I really have a passion. Uh, for this industry and this technology and everything else, um, and and hopefully, I'm hoping you know that uh, people have been telling me for almost 20 years that common sense will prevail and the FAA is going to come to their senses. Uh, we'll see. But, Please, uh, <laughs> Debbie Downer over there. We, uh, you know, we'll see what happens here. I, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm kind of concerned about getting timed out, you know, and and. Uh, being uh, out of the out of the workforce by the time things really get rolling, but we'll see what happens with that. There is a lot of there's still a I think a lot of technological technological breakthroughs to happen. I think there's a lot of uh, things that we're going to see in the future. It's just really to me, um, I don't think that the, the quadcopters are everything. I, I do think that we've been kind of focused on, on one rabbit, and we need to focus on the I don't even know what a bunch of rabbits is called, but that's what we need to do, and uh, I, I agree too that the uh, the cargo market is really a no brainer. You know, it's not as sexy as flying to Coachella, but uh, it's more useful and uh, less chance of of uh, you know loss of life and things like that. But anyway, uh, Steve, I'm glad that we got to have you on. Like I said, we've known you for a long time. I was wondering what happened with the saga with MLB. Great products and, and aircraft, and I'm glad that you are still in the game, sir. Oh, thank, so. thank you, Patrick and Gene, for having me. It was really great to talk to you guys. Yeah, yeah well, like good I said, talking to you too, Steve. We'll have to have you back for the uh, the cloud crap uh, cloud, cloud cap critique, and it'll be fun. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Until next time, everyone, uh, keep it in the air, and uh, we'll stay healthy and safe, and we'll see you soon. Uh, stay safe, my friends. Thanks. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.